Genesis 2. We're going to be going all over the place uh, in, our, in, our, in our scripture verses this morning. Um, but we're going to try to find a couple of anchors uh, to keep us uh, cemented down. And the first place we're going to go is Genesis chapter 2. And what we're going to do right now uh, is we're going to continue our worship. So this is a continuation of our worship. And we do that by opening God's word, by leaning into him to listen, and then by responding in faith. So just to be clear about what we're doing, the singing portion of what we were doing was not merely just the worship part of our service, but we are continuing our worship by opening um, God's word. Well, we've been in a three-week series here now called Life, Death, and the Afterlife. We, we put our Acts series on hold, uh, hoping to, to jump back into that uh, sooner than later. But we thought just given the times, it would be a good idea for us to see where our theology is at with issues pertaining to life and death and the afterlife. And uh, last week we talked about this really important topic of why we exist, why did God create us? And this week we're gonna just dive into uh, just sort of the, the, the polar end of that, which is death. And, and we're calling our sermon this morning, Living with Death, because we are all living with death. And we're all hesitant to talk about that. And by the way, preachers are not typically excited to preach about that, but at the same time, the reality is that we are all living with death and we do our best to avoid it, right? So I went on Amazon this week and, and I clicked on anti-aging products and over 20,000 of those products came up just in case you were worried that there weren't enough for you to, to cycle through in your life. Over 20,000 anti-aging products on Amazon. We want to be forever young as the old song goes. The problem is that death is hovering over us. It's coming to us, or more, probably more correctly, we, we're coming to it. Uh, the death rate is one per person. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. And by the way, that's why we don't want our language right now as Christians just to be rhetoric about death, right? We want to take it seriously that even in this pandemic, yeah, we know people die all the time from diseases, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking death seriously because it wasn't ever how it was supposed to be. And so Christians out of anybody, the church out of all people, we take death seriously. We grieve with it seriously. We don't just try to say whatever to death, but we understand it in light of the death of Christ and what God has called us to be in light of being mortal creatures. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So by the way, that line doesn't cause us to minimize death. You know, we're all going to die anyway, right? That's not really what it's calling us to, but it, but it actually maximizes death in a lot of ways in the sense that we all have a divine appointment with death that is unavoidable. So if that's true, then here's our question for this morning is how do we live with death? And what's interesting about that is that the Bible doesn't try to sidestep around the topic. It confronts the topic of death and it does it with grace. It does it with truth and it does it with wisdom. A guy named Matt McCullough, he's the author of a book called Remembering Death. This is what he said. He said, wisdom in the Bible is an instinct for living well in the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And then he goes on to say, wisdom doesn't hide from what's grievous about life in this fallen world. 
And in fact, when you look at the storyline of the Bible, it's the story about God conquering death. And because God conquered death through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus, it means that all of you, and this is where it gets a little dark for us here as we're just kind of kicking off this sermon, all of you will either conquer death through Christ or be conquered by death without Christ. And some of you are like, man, did you have a bad week, brother? Like, why are we diving into this right now? Well, these are important things for us to work out in our theology as we're dealing with something that is coming, that is impending for all of us. A guy named Matt Smethurst, he's an editor for the Gospel Coalition. He said, a Christian is someone who lives prepared to die and dies prepared to live. So man, are we, are we leaning into both of those truths? Are we finding ourselves growing and being sanctified in those two truths? So I'm gonna break this message down in three parts. The first part is going to be uh, the origin of death. We're just gonna chat through the origin of death, where it came from. Secondly, we're gonna be talking about the death of death and I'll explain more what I mean by that in a minute. And then I'm just gonna conclude with some observations for how Christians, how the church is called to live with death as people uh, who've had death conquered for them, all right? So our, 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 first, uh, our first point here is, is the origin of death. So when we get into this thing that we call redemptive history, or in other words, what is the big story? What is the big theme of the Bible? It really breaks down into four parts. We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So today, in a sense, kind of like last week, we talked a lot about the creation of man. Today, we're gonna just dive in a little bit to the fall of man, the fall of Adam and Eve when sin and death entered the world. And what the fall of man does, it introduces death as kind of a main character in the story of mankind. So when we look down at, at Genesis 2, I'm gonna pick up in verse 15. Again, I'm gonna be jumping all over the place, so follow along with me if you can. We're in the ESV uh, uh, translation of the Bible if you have a device. And if not, you can um, just turn in your regular Bibles today to Genesis 2. We're gonna pick up in verse 15. And this is what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge uh, of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God charges Adam and Eve, and he says, everything I've given you that you need for the good and the well-being of your souls is provided, but there's something I'm charging you with not to partake of. And then when we turn the page and we go to Genesis chapter three, picking up in verse one, we see what happened to Adam and Eve when they decided to not listen to the word of the Lord. And this is what it says, chapter three, picking up in verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Man, I would love to, to pause on that and unpack that a little bit, but just even right now to, to see the way the serpent confronts Eve with this question about the character and the goodness of God when he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And in verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And then in verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then verse 17 to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. And in verse 19, we're gonna conclude with this. It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken. By the way, Adam, remember something here. Remember something here, all of mankind. Out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, you are a creature is what God is saying. You were created and to dust you shall return. So I'm just gonna really quickly summarize everything we read here because Adam and Eve were created by God to be fruitful image bearers. We learned that last week, they were to multiply the earth, they were to have dominion over it. They were actually to enjoy a world that God had created and declared good in every sense. This is how I like to think of it. This is kind of the, the, the word picture that, that helps me think through this more clearly and to understand this, because I, I want you, if you've not heard the story of how man fell to sin, um, I want this to be so clear for you. And if you have heard this story, I want it to be so clear for you, because this is something we need to hear about constantly. But I like to think of it like a painter, I like to think of God like a painter who painstakingly creates a masterpiece that perfectly captures the intent of his or her imagination, a master painter. So in God's original masterpiece, his portrait of paradise, it perfectly captured his limitless power and his imagination to create something that would reflect the majesty of his glory. All of that was reflected 
in creation when you read Genesis. Whatever he spoke came into being exactly how he spoke it. And everything he spoke into existence, he declared to be good. So it's not like us, it's not like me when I get finished painting a room and I declare it to be mediocre and I just wish I would have paid somebody to do it, which is why I pay people to do all that stuff now. Um, that was different with God who is perfect in everything that he does. He declared it good. And imagine just for a second, a world that contained no death, a world that contained no decay, where nothing wore out, where nothing was running down and nobody had to self quarantine because there was no disease. There was no pandemic. There was no possibility of that happening. And what we see here and what we just read in Genesis three is that all of that was undone. All of it was undone when Adam and Eve ate the fruit God had forbidden. So in that moment, using the metaphor, uh, it was like they had just taken their own paintbrushes and smeared the masterpiece that God as creator had created. And so as image bearers of God, they committed cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul likes to say, against the creator of the universe. And it was a crime, by the way, punishable, by death, in the day that you eat it, God said, you will surely die. Which by the way, was evidenced what God said to be true by the degenerative process that began for them in all of creation. And of course, the greatest significance of this degenerative process was separation from God. There was a detachment then because God is holy. He is other, he is not like us. The Bible tells us he lives in unapproachable light. And he cannot simply ignore sin and let bygones be bygones. In fact, that would, that would say something about his character that would make him untrue to who he is, if that was true. So sin and death enter the world and the rest of uh, scripture just reflects this narrative over and over. Turn to Genesis 5 when we get this genealogy, these things that we typically are afraid to read and skip over when we get to these parts in our Bible. And what do you see at the end of, of, uh, of all these little ge genealogical descriptions? In verse 5, thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. What does it say next? And he died. All the days of Seth in verse 8 were 912 years. And he died died. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. I know it's crazy. We can't get into like the long lifespans of these, of these dudes. But again, what's significant for us after Genesis 3 is that these three words were never intended to be part of their existence. But here it is. And he died. And there's a significance to that for us. Because what we learn from the Genesis, Genesis narrative is that there wasn't always death. What we learn is that God didn't create a world or mankind with death and decay as their destiny. How important is it for us to understand that and to remember that? In fact, it's why the apostle Paul describes all of creation in Romans 8:22 as groaning. This is what he says. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly, Paul says, as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons for the redemption of our bodies. So all of creation, you, me, every living thing is now living with death. We are now suffering from decay. And with that reality comes this 
inner groaning, which is a longing for redemption. It's a longing for that day when death will not be hovering over us. Death will not be consuming our existence. Death will not be the future inevitable reality for all of us. Man, we want things to be made right. We want pain to reach its end point. There's a reason why we want that to be. And it's because written in our DNA is that time so many thousands of years ago when it wasn't so. So what the fall of man tells us about man is that he is a created being who rebelled against his creator. And he, Adam, Adam takes the, as, as the leader, as, as the one who God had, had given a headship in the family, he takes responsibility for the death of all of creation. But then what it tells us about God is that he is a merciful and a gracious creator who loved his creatures so much that he sent his only son to pay the price for their rebellion that we just read about in Genesis 3. So to be clear about our sin so that we can get to this next point, God's goodness and God's holiness, it demands justice, right? A penalty had to be paid. And so what this does, even just right now, is we're just beginning to understand about man's fall and his rebellion, his cosmic treason. It, it, it helps us answer some questions that are very complex in our thinking, which we're not gonna just get to the end of today. But some of those questions, like if God is sovereign, why does he allow pain and suffering? Why does he allow pandemics? Why is he allowing the economy to take all of these hits? Why is he allowing us to be just thrust into all of this discomfort and not getting us back to our routines and the things that we love to do that are good things? Like why? Well, first off, we have to remember when we go back to Genesis 3, we were the ones who made that possible. You were the one who made pandemics possible. I am the one who made pandemics possible. Why? Because we're related to Adam. We're related to Eve. Secondly, we don't know why God doesn't choose to stop some suffering. Although if we pause, we can probably make lists that go miles of all the ways that he has stopped suffering. But here's what we know. Here's what we also know. We also know that it's because he's a sovereign God that he can walk with us through it like he did his only son who he sent to suffer. So not all the questions get answered, but they start making sense when we understand what it is that happened so long ago in the creation narrative. There was an origin to our death. And that leads us to the death of our death. Because although sin came through one man, life came through the death of one man. And here's what's great about this. And I'm gonna have you turn to right now to Romans five. We're gonna be just kind of bouncing around in Romans five and six and eight. We already actually read some of the passages uh, during our time of praise. Uh, and we're, we're gonna go over some of those passages again. But Matthew, as you're getting there, gives us some, 
excuse me, imagery from the book of Isaiah of what the coming of Christ represented for us. So just to, to make sure that we don't minimize our fallenness, to make sure we don't minimize our cosmic treason or our sin before holy God, because that's kind of what we do. Um, this is what Matthew 4 verse 16, quoting Isaiah said, it said, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. It feels like I'm just gonna be hopping into one of our you know, Advent series right now. I'm not, but this gives us some idea about what it is that Christ, the, the, the atmosphere, the scenario, the picture, right? That, that God sent Jesus into, right? Because the Bible never tries to underplay death. The Bible never underplays death. It gives us vivid imagery like we just read from Isaiah to show how close we are to death. We are living in the shadow and in the region of death. We dwell with death. We live with death constantly in the same way that no matter where you go in Ashland, right? You're still in Ashland, right? We gather in the warehouse, we go to Uniontown, we go to Aldi's, we go to Grandpa's Cheese Bone, we go home, we are in the region of Ashland in all of those places. So the Bible tells us Jesus was sent to people who lived under an inescapable shadow in the region of death. Now we can't physically remove ourselves from it just as much as we can't remove ourselves from our own shadow, right? Unless we're Peter Pan, right? So then we get to Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul, he describes this death that is hovering over us that we are in the region and under the shadow of. And he describes death as coming through one man, but that it was the death of another man that brought life through grace. And grace is so important for us here. It's so important because you must see that the only reason why you can live with death and then have life after death is because the death of Jesus was a free gift planned by God all the way back then uh, in Genesis 3, uh, like we just read. So in other words, uh, if you are saved, it is because number one, God chose you to be saved. And number two, he provided the death of his son so that you could be saved, so that it was possible for you to be saved. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there, there was a debt. There was a penalty that needed to be paid. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, he had this great quote. He said, you're born, you suffer, you die. Thanks, Billy. But look how he finished his quote. He said, fortunately, there's a loophole. And what we find out here as we read all of scripture is that Jesus is the loophole, so to speak. He is that loophole. And so this is what it's like if we can give ourselves even just a clearer picture of the death of death coming from the origin of death. It's kind of like being held in court for a crime that you committed. And the judge, by the way, has indisputable evidence against you. But here's the rub is that somebody has to pay the penalty because justice needs to be served and sin has to be atoned for, right? Uh, Hebrews 9.22, the book of Hebrews, it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be a payment made. 
But then all of a sudden, as you're waiting to get sentenced for something that you know you deserve to be sentenced for, Jesus steps forward and he says, I will pay. And it's because Jesus has a perfect record and is able to pay that God is able then after he pays to declare you not guilty, to declare you justified, to declare you now righteous, right? Not because, again, you're still standing in that courtroom. You still committed that crime. You didn't do anything. You didn't do jack. But it was because of who stood in the gap for you, who became your substitute, who paid your penalty. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 1. I'm going to read this. It says, if I turn to it first, that would probably be more helpful to all of you. Romans 1, Romans 5, 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, with peace with that judge. It says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then we get to verse six and it says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So you get that courtroom kind of scenario in your head and think through this as I read this. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe he's saying. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still just kind of walking around in the shadow and region of death with all that Genesis three stuff hovering over us, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died. Christ stepped up and said, I'll pay. And then in verse nine, it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of of God. So this gives us an idea of the seriousness of our sin and what actually we are being saved from, which is the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, Paul says, and there's more. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if you think of your sin as a capital crime and cosmic treason against God, which by the way, the Bible, as we've just pointed out, is crystal clear about, then you understand that salvation is God choosing to spare you the punishment you deserve by choosing to punish his son instead who willingly stepped forward and took the judgment of God upon his shoulders. This is called penal substitution. It's a fancy theological term, penal substitution. Jesus was the substitute for your penalty of sin against God. This is how death has been conquered for you instead of conquering you. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the death of death, amen, right? That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can write this. He can take this Old Testament quote and he can say death is swallowed up in victory, right? Oh, death, he says, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And it's not to say that there is no sting in death. There is a sting, but there is an ultimate victory beyond the grave that was paid for 
and given to us by Christ. And then of course in Romans 6 verse 5, if you want to turn there, this is Paul encouraging us by saying, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. So this, this whole idea of our sins being atoned for and death being destroyed, what it actually means is that we're going to be face to face with the fulfillment of all of our longings and our groanings. It's not just some sort of harp-like existence floating through clouds, getting to eat whatever we want without gaining any weight and just sort of being on eternal vacation for the rest of our lives. Hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But what this is, is being face-to-face and united with the one who stood in the gap for us and said, I'm gonna pay for them because I love them. And this is some of the brutalness that comes down with this when we think of our lives Um, following being reconciled with God. It says here, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, Paul says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So that's a future hope for us. We know that Christ, he says, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if you, if you need some hope, if you need some clarity in your understanding of what it meant for Jesus to die for you, even though you contributed to the origins of death, the second Adam, which is a a name that's given to Jesus, he is the one that completed the death of death. All right, so I wanna finish right now with just four observations, okay, for how Christians are called to live with death as people who've had death conquered for them. So I wanted to, to cover the origins of death because I wanted us to have a a working theology and understanding of where it all happened with the fall of man in redemptive history, as as we learn, that's the name for it. But I also wanted us to understand about the death of death, the effective nature of Christ coming and dying and saving and having it stick, having it be sticking to us, right? And so now four observations about living with death. Number one, this is what we learned from scripture in regards to living with death. My first one is this, let death be your life coach. Okay, that's our first exhortation, our first encouragement. Ecclesiastes seven verses one through two says this, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. So Matt McCullough, again, the the guy quoted at the beginning of the sermon, author of that book, Remembering Death, he has this great, great quote about this that I'm gonna read, and this is what he says about that verse. He says, it's not that death is better than life, because that's clearly what we just read, right? The day of death is better than the day of birth. He says, it's not that death is better than life. He said, it's that we have more to learn from the sheer fact that our lives will end 
than from the fact that we're alive in the first place. And then he says this, we learn those lessons not in the house of feasting, where quick hitting pleasures keep our minds out of gear, but in the house of mourning, where we look long and hard at the truths that rightly break our hearts. So a fancier way of saying this is what I pointed out in the beginning is this, let death be your life coach. So I think about my own life and I think about some of the deaths in my own life that I've experienced, whether it was my dad back in 2007 who just died suddenly of a heart aneurysm. I think of my friend Randy uh, just a couple months ago who just died after a long battle with cancer. He's my age. I, I feel myself as, I've, as I, I was going to say approaching middle age. It's like, buddy, you, you better get your head wrapped around your life a little more securely than that. As I'm well into middle age, um, those thoughts of mortality and death dying and end of life and less years than I had a decade ago. Um, those are things that are sobering me right now, right? But that's what happens with loss is that we learn sobriety from loss. We gain character, the Bible tells us, from grief. I learn what it means to hope from heartbreak. How else? will character be formed in me? How else will character be formed in you? How else will a longing and groaning for redemption be established in me? So what death does, one of the things it does is it teaches us that we all share the same destiny in this life. And it also reminds us how surprised we are when we're confronted with death. I mean, why are we always so shocked when we get the news that another celebrity has passed? I can't believe it. They were, you know, 98 years old. It's like, why are we surprised by that? There's something unnatural about death that still shocks us. It still sobers us. It's still something we, we like to shelter ourselves from. It's something we like to hide from. But yet in Ecclesiastes here, what, what the writer, Song of Solomon of this book is trying to tell us is let it teach you something about your life as you're inching closer to an inevitability that is either going to bring you face to face with God or otherwise. So let death be your life coach. Secondly, consider the storehouses of your soul. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, if you go to Luke 12, Verse 16, if you want to turn back to Luke, one of the Gospels, Jesus told a parable. Called the parable of the rich fool. It picks up in verse 16. I'm going to, I'm going to read it from there. And it says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops, Right? Big problem, nice problem to have is what we might say. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So when you're reading this, your first thought is like, what's the big deal? The, the, guy, the guy was doing well, he was successful, the guy wanted to build a bigger barn to store all of his goods. Like, well, is there, help me understand this, Ronnie. I don't see what the big deal is, you know? Like, you know, those are, that reminds me of like some of the moves I'm making right now in terms of, you know, my accumulations and the things that I'm doing to expand on my property. What's the big deal? Well, by the way, this doesn't mean don't plan. This doesn't mean don't build barns. Um, it doesn't mean don't be a good steward with the resources God has given you. This is about a person who's made their goods, their gods at the expense of everything else. And instead of generosity, um, what characterizes their heart is um, motivation by greed. So again, it's not whether God has blessed you with riches, what this parable tells us is it's whether you're rich toward God because you don't know the day and the hour that your soul is gonna be required of you. So there's a sobriety in this parable, right? So you need to preach truth to your soul. You need to consider the storehouses of your soul. Because why? Because it's constantly selling you something corruptible, right? It's telling you to stack up the wrong things. It's saying build on a foundation of sand over stone. It's saying store up those things that bring riches in this life that will ultimately bring poverty in the next. Because we know that accumulation, man, it doesn't work. We've all experienced this when we store up things that will be the sale items of future garage sales and spring cleaning days. What does it show? What is it telling us about our soul? Well, it's saying that we have a longing in our souls that is inconsolable when we feed it with treasures that will someday become our trash. There's a sadness to that in the way that we find ourselves like the rich fool. So it's not wrong and it's not strange that you want something that lasts, but it is wrong and it is strange that we choose things that don't last to be our lasting things. It also shows foolishness, the Bible tells us. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And then he says this famous line, maybe you've heard this line before, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He accumulates more than any other person in the world has ever accumulated, like his barns are just bulging. What profit is it if he does all of that gaining, but he forfeits his soul in the process? Or he just says it right here, what shall a man give in return for his soul, what is it worth? Is your soul worth that? Goods and riches and wealth that you cannot take with you. We joke about that too. Well, you can't take it with you as you're just stacking. Can't take it. Well, hold on, I gotta find some place else to put it. This is something that should, again, sober us because the fool accumulates things that separate him from God in the end. Whereas the wise person accumulates the things of God that will go with him beyond the grave. And you know what? We're told by Jesus in Matthew 6 that he would take care of us if we seek the right things. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Consider the storehouses of your soul. Number three, we can 
live with death as people whose death has been conquered for them, meaning that we can suffer well. We can also suffer well because why? Because our soul is well. First Corinthians 15, 19, uh, Scott read this earlier. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Some of you knew uh, Danny Krispinski. Uh, he was a, a member of our church, 35 years old. He, he was the uh, women's soccer coach at Ashland University. He died on January 1st, 2019. He had a long battle with cancer. Um, I remember one of my meetings with Danny when he was having a moment where he was struggling um, like we all do. But I remember something he said and it stuck out to me and he, he, he made this comment. He said, I know that I will be healed either in this world or in the world to come. And there was this moment with Danny as somebody who was facing death where his focus shifted from earth to eternity. And what a testimony for us who, who look at, you know, who have the tendency to look at someone who's, who's facing death in a way that we don't believe uh, we are because they maybe have a disease or something that's confronting them in a very unique way in that moment. And how interesting that we look at somebody who is getting clarity about life and death and we have the tendency just to step away and think, man, that just probably doesn't apply to me because I'm not in that same scenario uh, as, as he is. And yet what we read from the parable that we just read is that this day your soul was required of you and the day before there was, no, uh, there, there was no understanding that that was going to be the case. And that's all of us when we think about death. We don't know when our souls are going to be required of us. Uh, Puritan, uh, one of the Puritans, a guy named Thomas Adams said this, we spend our years with sighing. He says, it is a valley of tears, but Death is the funeral of all of our sorrows. And that's what Danny was saying to me that day. I'm going to be healed. Uh, it may be in this life, but I know it's going to be in the world to come um, without fail. And by the way, we can only suffer well like Danny did when our soul is well like Danny's was, right? When we are rich toward God, when our hope has not been spent only on the comforts of this Life. And by the way, the wellness of our soul is how we're able to com comfort others in their own afflictions as well. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So living with death means that we can suffer well because our soul has been made well. So we want to let death be our life coach. We wanna consider the storehouses of our soul. We want to suffer well because our soul is well. And then finally, we wanna see death in light of Jesus's life. We wanna see death in light of Jesus's life. Romans 14, eight through nine, Paul tells us, for if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So living with the death of Jesus redeems some of this fear of death 
that we have. It replaces fear of death with the face we will see when we die. The death of Jesus, in a sense, man, it, just, it gave death a facelift in that way. John eleven twenty five 25 said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, he said, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question at the end. He said, do you believe this? Do you believe in the reality of your death and in the deeper reality of the death of Jesus? And you remember the story of Lazarus in John 11 or it was told to Jesus who was a couple of villages away that one of his best friends, Lazarus, was sick. And it wasn't just any sickness, but it was something that was leading to death. And Jesus pauses a few days before going over there um, and Lazarus ends up dying. And yet what we see at the end of the story is this emotional moment that Jesus has over the death of his best friend who he eventually raises from the dead. So. Here's what this story tells us is that when death entered our world, death became the fullest uh, expression of all the things and all the sin and all the brokenness that our world has to offer. So when you think of the culmination of death, what, what is the, so the, the culmination of death is us in the soil, but what are the things that death produces? What is the fullest expression of death? Well, it's things like racism. It's things like oppression and cruelty and injustice and pain and disease and unkindness. Which is why it tells us in the story of Lazarus that Jesus was weeping over the death of Lazarus. Because why else would he be weeping? If death didn't crush the soul and spirit of Jesus as being fully man, why would he be weeping? He knew that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead. Why the tears, Jesus? Because Jesus grieved the sting of death. He wept over the pain and the suffering that death caused to loved ones, just like we do. It's right for us to grieve. It's right for us to see people in their pain and be sorrowful with them and brokenhearted with them. Death was never meant to be. That's why we should never be callous or flippant about loss of life. From the unborn all the way to the elderly. All of life. Womb to tomb. It all matters. It's considered precious in the sight of God. Because man, Christians, we, we live with the death of so many things, don't we? We're, 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 not, we're not sort of absent from the world. We're not sort of separated from the world when it comes to experiencing the full expressions of death in our life. And that's why it's right for us to grieve like Jesus grieved. But we also live with the death of Jesus who is no longer dead and is the reason why we have hope in death. And so because of that, we grieve like Jesus, but not like those who have no hope. But we weep like Jesus, but not like those whose weeping find no comfort. We feel the sting of death like Jesus, while believing that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, 
death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We understand our death in light of Jesus's death who brought us life. So it gives death a meaning for us that allows us to look rightly at our own life and the things that we are accumulating. It allows us to step into the lives of others who are suffering and suffer well with them. It allows us to turn our face and redirect our gaze back to Jesus who conquered death because that's a death that was conquered for us. And it's the reason why we have the hope to sing like we just sang. Is this your hope? Is this your hope? And if it has been your hope, what has shifted in your life to make you fall into some of the despair that we see Christians falling into? So this is a sermon as we end here that we want to be reflective of. We want to consider what God has to say about us, our origins of death, about Jesus who was the death of death and about what it means for us to live with death as people who now have had death conquered for them. The question you gotta ask is, are you that person and are you living with this hope? And that's my prayer, that's our prayer for you and for us this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you that in Christ we understand death rightly and we give praise and honor and glory to you for such a death as Christ so that we might have life, so that we might be able to stand with others through times of suffering, that we might be able to be reflective of our, own, uh, of our own accumulation of things that we can't take with us in death. Lord, so that when we open God's word, Lord, we, we see what it is that you tell us about what we are to learn and to become wise about when it comes to our mortality. And we thank you that we find the answer to those things in Christ. So God, would you allow us to reflect on these things this morning, Lord, for those uh, who have, who have not seen their death as being something that Christ is the answer to, would you meet them in this place this morning? Would you allow them to see, Lord, their sin in light of Christ's death? Would you allow their hearts to break this morning for Jesus so that they might receive the death that brings them life and trust in him for the rest of their life? So God, give us... Um, Give us this care for our souls this morning as we consider these heavy things, knowing that only in you do we have the lightness and life um, that we long for and desire. Thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.